stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. 403-974-8255 is the number. Well, some more time for your calls coming up uh, in this hour. A few other things to get to as well. Off the top in this hour, though, some new developments uh, in the case of Cameron Ortiz. He was uh, arrested in September of last year, facing eight counts under the Security of Information Act, as well as breach of trust. So a lot of these are really basically espionage charges. And it was a real black eye for the RCMP because Cameron Ortiz was the director general of the National Intelligence Coordination Center. He was a civilian. Uh, But within the RCMP, he was the highest ranking intelligence official. So the idea that that somebody like that, who had access to a lot, would be disclosing classified information is incredibly concerning. So we're getting a a more of a picture in terms of what was going on in in the RCMP. And they they had a lot invested in in Cameron Ortiz. They saw him as uh, the person to take the intelligence program to the next level. So they gave him a lot of responsibility and a lot of trust. We've also learned in Global News reporting this today uh, that uh, an internal review concluded that the RCMP's leaders failed to act on widespread harassment complaints against Cameron Ortiz. So we're getting more of a picture of what was going on in the RCMP and the events leading up to his arrest in 2019. Joining us uh, to talk more about all of this is national investigative journalist for Global News, Sam Cooper. Much more globalnews.ca, of course. Sam, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, so there's a lot here and a lot of really interesting new information about this case uh, and about Cameron Ortiz's rise in the RCMP. What, what jumps out to you, though, first of all? Yeah, you're right. This this report it's really about uh, the 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 managers of the RCMP ignoring or failing to resolve a lot of harassment complaints that were forwarded up the chain about Mr. Mr. Ortiz when he took over this elite intelligence unit. But uh, what we found so interesting was uh, it's not an old story that harassment, uh, sorry, it's not a new story that harassment happens in the RCMP. What this report showed is really that Cameron Ortiz was was pushed up to a a position of power and intelligence as a really a shining star. we're told, and, and the report really indicates, you know, a very bright academic that was seen to be leading the charge of civilians within the force so that it could be more like the FBI or in, uh, Canada's five so-called Five Eyes intelligence partners. And this was really, uh, you could say, the baby of former Commissioner Bob Paulson. He had this vision of civilians leading the force, increasing its so-called intelligence posture and using something called high side intelligence, which is very classified, sensitive data, you know, shared among Canada's partners, including the UK, United States and Australia. It's not easily used in RCMP investigations. So right off the bat, there's a risk there. But uh, again, the report shows that Ortiz was pushed forward as a champion of this movement. And uh, he took over this unit. And as we've learned in a civil case, uh, really, it's alleged that he used his position to uh, get this uh, very classified intelligence and allegedly share it with the dangerous people or entities from foreign nations. So this report is helping us to understand more about really the, the irony here that 
this was a this was a move by the top you know the top leaders of the RCMP to improve Canada's reputation with our allies, improve our intelligence, and really it backfired. The opposite happened, and we're left with this case against Mr. Ortiz. We should add that uh, we don't know if he if he's claiming innocence or not. Uh, he hasn't been tried yet. It creates a sense so that maybe he was being protected here, that because they saw him, as you say, as, as such a potential star, this this bright light, he was going to make such a huge difference in building up the uh, NICC, uh, that maybe there were some blinders or, or maybe looking the other way. What, what can we conclude about that at this point? Absolutely. Uh, the report, uh, the, the extracts that we viewed of this very uh, confidential, important report are redacted. That means we can't read everything, but certainly there are lines within the report that say that uh, the employees that complained about uh, Mr. Ortiz and uh, their their concerns were not resolved say that they viewed uh, this as a old boys club at the top of the RCMP. Their lines uh, uh, to the reviewer, Mr. Alphonse McNeil, suggest that they feel uh, Mr. Paulson and uh, a few officers around him were part of this club, and that's why uh, Mr. Ortiz wasn't dealt with. There are lines in the report uh, the conclusion says uh, the, the RCMP brass's goal of overhauling this intelligence unit and pushing this uh, bold reform really didn't uh, pay attention to the human impact of what were seen as very capable and good employees who had their concerns that they were being harassed and bullied uh, completely ignored, really. Uh, that's Let's be clear. The report says that their concerns were not addressed. Nothing happens until Mr. Ortiz's arrest. And uh, we're really, we're left to sift whether, whether this uh, protection of Mr. Ortiz because of, you know, his move to overhaul a unit has left Canada in the position where not only these employees' uh, careers were damaged, but Canada's uh, vulnerability to, uh, you know, national security threats appears to have been harmed and there appears to have been lasting damage within the RCMP due to this case. Now, it was September uh, of last year, September 2019, that he was arrested. What's the timeline as we know it in terms of when these these allegations were coming forward? How, How does this all play into what we know about the case? What we know about the case is that very soon after uh, Mr. Ortiz is promoted to take over this unit, the NIC, in uh, spring of 2016, almost immediately, uh, some senior analysts that have been uh, in intelligence for the RCMP start to make informal complaints, saying they're they're starting to feel that their work is not valued. They're feeling potentially pushed aside. Uh, Then letters start to be escalated up the chain of command in the RCMP in 2017. And really, that's what the report details. Uh, we, we can see enough information that we can read that those three or four people, let's say maybe five or six at the top of the RCMP, there appears to be a sort of a shuffling of uh, the papers so that people really don't address these concerns. We have uh, one senior officer uh uh, that that appears to have to have pushed the, those concerns herself and said these are serious and yet nothing happens. So by 2018, 2019, still nothing is happening. Uh, letters are still being sent. People are being talked to about these concerns, but nothing happens until uh, the arrest and uh, and then some uh, independent reviews are undertaken. 
It's interesting because, you know, these allegations of harassment don't speak directly, obviously, to, to the charges and what Otis is alleged to have done. But the idea maybe that he was being protected or that, that others in the RCMP were, were kind of blind to his activities, is, is there the potential here that this kind of creates a, that, that narrative then that maybe some of this could have been prevented or, or maybe to some extent he was even enabled possibly? Well, there, there's a, a number of sort of lines of inquiry going on within the RCMP, internationally, within uh, Global News, our own investigations. You know, I can break down an answer for you on that question. Uh, I think you're right on. Uh, we hear from sources that not only was there sort of a professional protection going on, as I've uh, said, the report shows that Mr. Ortiz was the champion of this bold overhaul of the intelligence unit. So the report suggests he was protected because he was pushing something that the very top of the uh, the RCMP wanted to see succeed. But we've, again, let's look at those comments about an old boys club that are reflected in that report. We have done our reporting and talked to people within the RCMP that say, absolutely, uh, Mr. Ortiz was very close with a couple of people right at the top, uh, one of them being the former commissioner, Bob Paulson. So is there that could there have been that level of personal protection as well that that adds to a, a failure here? Uh, I sh we should say that Mr. Paulson has said he did have a friendly relationship, but he's denied that he was aware of any of the complaints or any you know serious allegations about Mr. Ortiz. But what we're left with is absolutely a, a story of certainly actions were not taken. Were there personal and professional uh, issues intermingling in this sort of uh, aura that was around Mr. Ortiz. Absolutely. I, I'm talking to people in Ottawa, and that is the narrative uh, that's coming out, and it is supported by this report from what we can read of it. Yeah. Well, and of course, at this point, I mean, we still don't know the nature of the, the secret information to whom it was being provided. Uh, there was one recipient, and apparently he was allegedly planning to give more to what we know as a foreign entity, maybe more it will come out as this case moves along. What, what's the next step in, in the legal process? Do we know at this point? It, it's very difficult to know because there's uh, what we do know is there's such an amount of uh, allegedly uh, secret encrypted information that was uh, found in Mr. Ortiz's possession. Uh, that's part of the charges that uh, that's part of the information we know that uh, the the prosecution is looking at a lot of information and the defense wants disclosure of that information and uh, if we're talking about the very sensitive nature that automatically raises uh, difficulties in the court about what can be shared could something that was shared you know endanger Canada's national security all over again so the uh, we can say that the case seems to be dragging out we really don't know uh, what position again that Mr. Ortiz is taking we're not aware that he has claimed any innocence at all so we don't know what kind of uh, discussions are happening really behind the scenes between the defense and the prosecution um, what we do know is that uh, a civil case tells us that these bullying and harassment uh, alleged actions of Mr. Ortiz allegedly were part of his scheme to obtain secret information that he could use for his own his own benefit. And of course, the uh, the allegations are he was seeking or planning to communicate for a uh, personal financial gain. So where do we go from here? I can tell you that uh, we expect uh, more disclosure, probably more fights around what information could be shared. It's difficult to 
say right now uh, what, how the case will move forward because things really are so slow at this point. Yes, they are. Uh, well, much more on uh, all of these new revelations, globalnews.ca. Sam Cooper, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Sam Cooper, national investigative journalist with Global News. So really fascinating scoop from him today. Uh, again, globalnews.ca. So it paints more of a picture, I, I think, in terms of what was going on within the RCMP and, and maybe why Cameron Ortiz sort of felt like he could get away with whatever. So very disturbing. Let me just, uh, before we go to a break, I wanted to play uh, clip number five here. One of the uh, security experts of Global News spoke with uh, Jessica Dave, uh, Davis, saying that you know, this does raise a lot of questions about to what extent Cameron Otis was being protected and then by extension enabled in committing these alleged crimes. This is uh, clip number five. And the question for me really here is, was that a systematic issue within the RCMP? So were they not addressing those kinds of complaints that were being levied against multiple managers? And presumably um, in an organization of that size, there would have been multiple complaints, just given, given the nature of the organization. And, or was Cameron Ortis being specifically protected? Um, and these, this has a really important um, implication from my perspective, because if it's a systematic problem within the RCMP, that's certainly an organizational issue. But if Cameron Ortis was being protected individually because of special relationships he may have had with senior executives, that to me is um, even more serious than the systematic issues because it probably would have enabled him to engage in some of the alleged criminal activities for a much longer period of time without any, any suspicions being levied against him on that front. All right, some thoughts there from security expert Jessica Davis. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. Our number, 403-974-8255-974-TALK. Um, certainly, we talked a lot about the many challenges facing contact tracing in Alberta at the moment. And, and unfortunately, it's a real mess. Uh, the province is in the process of hiring new contact tracers, but uh, it sounds like that's a process that could take as much as four to six weeks. So that leaves us flying in, uh, in the dark here for, for a while yet. So the contact tracers simply aren't able to keep up with the number of new cases we're, we're amassing every day. And so a lot of people now have been basically left to fend for themselves. That if you're able to reach your own contacts, it's kind of your job to do that and hope that they're getting good information and, and hope that they know what to do in terms of uh, isolating, et cetera. But if you want to stay a step ahead of this virus, you, you got to have testing and tracing. And if you don't, well, you get what we have right now. Now, technology was supposed to help. And the Alberta government back in May rolled out its uh, contact tracing app, AB Trace Together. And look, they were the first in Canada to do so. And, and the, to their credit, they recognized the potential value of, of using technology to assist in those efforts. Unfortunately, though, AB Trace Together has not worked. I think we just need to acknowledge it. It hasn't worked. It has been plagued with technical problems. It uh, was initially promoted, and then they stopped promoting it, and then they've been promoting it once again. But maybe the, the, the final straw here is the revelation this week that it's only been used 19 times, 19 positive cases. That, that's a lot of money to spend on something that's, that's only been used 19 times. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about some of the problems that, that remain with uh, AB Trace together, including some of the technical challenges, which 
maybe haven't been resolved to the extent that the province uh, has assured us. Uh, he's been doing a deep dive on all of this. Calgary-based uh, engineer Ziad Faisal uh, joins us uh, once again on the program here. Ziad, good to talk to you again. Welcome back to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me back. I appreciated talking with you last time and this time as well. Yeah, um, yeah I heard your introduction. And yeah, there have been several death knells for the Alberta Trace Together app. And part of them have been technical and part of them have been implementation. And as a project manager or just as a person, you need kind of both parts. You need a technological solution and you need to implement it right. On the technological side, the app has just um, been proven to be a failure again and again. And the biggest um, uh, proof of failure was um, from Mathieu Feniak, uh, a Calgary developer, who um, raised the admission by the Singapore developers on July 3rd that they know their app doesn't work iPhone. Yeah, just so iPhone. people are clear, let me just jump in, because what, what Singapore is using is, is basically the same kind of platform as, as AB Trace together, right? Correct. And Singapore yeah. is pushing hard for other jurisdictions around the world to use it. So instead of um, the federal government's app, which is using the Apple Google framework that's baked into the operating system and is therefore efficient and workable, also global. Um, Alberta Trace Together is based on the Singapore, quote, Blue Trace um, technology, which is done not in the operating system, but at the application level. So it's if Rob, you and I were to bump into each other or sort of two meters bump into each other on the street, I've got my iPhone in my pocket with Alberta Trace Together on it. And I don't know what's in your pocket, but let's say it's an iPhone. That contact is not being logged. Even if we were going to be idiots and sit together in the park bench and have a burger and sit and talk for half an hour, our two phones, which are now, you know, an elbow's length from each other, will not record that contact. So if you, you know, um, also from Matthew's testing, and which has been confirmed by other jurisdictions around the world that have looked at the Singapore technology, the Blue Trace technology, Matthew's testing is confirming what other jurisdictions have seen, which is that it's spotty with Android to Android, and it's spotty with iOS to Android. And I won't go too technical, but the reason is iOS phones and Android phones try to protect their batteries. And when you have an app that's churning away, trying to make Bluetooth radio connections, you know, to, to people within two meters or Bluetooth range, um, it churns down the battery. It's kind of like, um, you know, people have earbuds and they listen to music on their earbuds. Well, let's say your iPhone in your pocket is trying to, co trying to connect to every earbud around you. So, you know, I remember what it's like downtown, pre-COVID when you're in a busy mall and there's people on the escalators and people all around you. Imagine how much my battery would drain if my phone is trying to play music on every earbud. So it's been known since at least May, uh, probably April, from what we're seeing of the testing, that this technology definitely does not work iPhone to iPhone and likely doesn't work um, Android to Android or iOS to Android because these phones just naturally sleep these applications, they, they put their put the app to sleep or put the underlying Bluetooth tracing processes to sleep, and so they don't work. So what um, Singapore admitted in July 
is that July 3rd is that because people were asking them on their support forum, uh, this doesn't seem to be working. Like, yeah, my app is in the background, but it doesn't seem to be working. So Singapore admitted, which is surprising because it's a pretty controlled um, developer NDA um, situation there in Singapore and not the greatest free speech there. And they admitted, yeah, it doesn't work iOS to iOS. But they minimized it saying, but it's only 25% of our interactions. Well, Singapore is 37% iPhone. Alberta, Alberta Trace Together downloads are 66% iPhone. So I have an iPhone in my pocket. That means when I walk around and I'm in contact with people, for the 66% who also have iPhones, we are not tracing each other. So it's very dangerous because I have a false sense of security, right? We have to make risk assessments about where we go out, when we go out, how close we get to people, how much to take a risk. You know, the risk is even, it's not just do I go to the bar or not, it's do I go grocery shopping every 10 days or every 15 days? Um, Do I go to work or do I tell my boss, I'm not doing it, I'm working from home, I don't care, my life is important. So I make a risk assessment based on whether this phone in my pocket is helping me or not. In Alberta Trace Together, it is not. So I'm, I'm pretty furious about this because Dr. Hinshaw is your doctor and she's my doctor. And she's the doctor of four and a half million of us Albertans. And for the last six months, she's been telling us to use this made in Alberta, let's say it's a heart tracing, a heart monitor. So she's been telling us to use this made in Alberta heart monitor, even though the Alberta Health committed in beginning of August to cut over to the free made in Canada heart monitor, which is a lot better, objectively, measurably better. And in October, Health Minister Shandro said the Team Canada app, COVID alert, is so good. We want every Albertan who's using the Alberta heart monitor to cut over to the Team Canada heart monitor. It's so good. We don't want a single one of our users missing out on it. So back to my doctor, Dr. Henshaw. So she gives me this heart monitor and gives 268,000 other Albertans this heart monitor and tells me to you know, put it against my heart and walk around with it all day and it'll protect me, it'll monitor my heart. And on the technical side, Deloitte has known since July and since whatever testing they did before they released the quote fix in September, whatever testing they did, the key phrase, Delete was known it doesn't work for iPhone users, iPhone to iPhone, and that it's spotty iPhone to Android. So this um, heart monitor sitting against my chest that I think is protecting me in at least 66% of the cases is not. Now, the revelation that came out before about this 19 times in six months. So this is like I have a heart attack and I go see my doctor, Dr. Hinshaw, and I say, Dr. Hinshaw, can you upload my heart monitor's results, um, you know, logging my heart for the last six months? Can you upload that into your system and let's see what happened to my heart? And she says, um, because of some tenacious pressure by reporters, I have to tell you, it's only 19 times in the last six months I've used it. 19 times out of 268,000 downloads. 19 times out of 10,000 cases. She said in her last conference, the contact tracers are having to notify 1,000 positive people a day who unfortunately have a positive test. And from that, they're trying to quickly get as many as 
contacts as possible, on average 15. So she set herself 15,000 contacts to trace a day. Compare that to this app being used three times a month. So maybe my doctor, Hinshaw, doesn't know about this 66% thing. Definitely Alberta Health and Deloitte know. But my doctor knows in the last six months, out of 268,000 people, she's only used it 19 times. So I'll let the regulators and the lawyers hash it out, but I'm thinking the word malpractice here. You know, she has a statutory responsibility during a public health emergency to do infection control. And the only thing the chief medical officer has control over is what's in AHS and the bread and butter of infection control of outbreak management, which is testing and tracing. So tracing, our contact traces are overloaded. We're talking about raising headcount from 800 to 1,000. In the meantime, the workload has gone up exponentially. I don't know who would want that job. And then um, it's only been used uh, 19 times. So that's not a lot of help for those contact tracers. So it's for not, six right? months... And I guess, yeah. Sorry, well, I was, was going to say because... Months, yeah, go ahead. The CMOH health minister and premier have been telling us, download this app, it's very important. Download the app. It's the only one that connects to the provincial contact tracers. The federal one doesn't. That's why we're rejecting the federal one. Well, the Alberta app doesn't connect to the provincial contact tracers either, and they know it. Yeah, that's the issue here, that, that they, they haven't been up front, I think, about the technical issues. Even if this app was functioning as it was supposed to, if you're simply yeah. dumping more phone numbers, more names and phone numbers onto the contact tracers who can't keep up as it is, then, then the app's not really helping, even if we could fix these technical issues, it seems. But that's the point. We're not dumping the logs to the contact tracers. It's Three a month for the last six months. We're not using it, even though we say we are. People be, aren't being asked about it, from what we understand as well. Oh, well, it shouldn't take a tenacious reporter from another media publication to keep hammering for weeks to ask, how much is this being used? You know, I've said to other reporters I've spoken to, you know, I'm pretty sure you're guaranteed a Pulitzer Prize if you can find out from Alberta's Trace Together's 247,000 downloads or 268,000 downloads, how many of those have actually registered by putting their phone number and using the app? Because it's a protected secret. But now we get this scoop that it's, not only are we looking at a subset of 268,000 that have registered the app, but only 19 of those people have uploaded their contact logs to the province. 19 out of 10,000 cases so far. How do you do that to your population? You don't have to have a reporter hound you for weeks to go, is it working or not? Yeah. You, you can't keep telling your population, keep using this heart monitor, which I'm not using. Uh, yeah, it, I, I think it's time. It's beyond time, I, I think, to to recognize that, that this has not worked out. Uh, Zia, we've got to leave it there, but uh, appreciate the insight on, on this as always. Thanks for joining us here. Thanks, Rob. Anytime. All right, take care. Uh, that's uh, Ziad Faisal, Calgary-based engineer, who's been uh, going through the technical data uh, around this app and others like it and trying to understand what's actually going on here. So still plagued with uh, some technical challenges, clearly. It's not being used. It's not helping in contact tracing. It, it's just the idea of developing something made sense. But I think it's just it's beyond time to acknowledge, that, okay, that this hasn't worked out. This isn't helping. This isn't useful. 
either let's abandon the idea of, of using apps altogether or let's use the federal one. Revisit the uh, the great ketchup controversy from uh, a few years ago, when uh, Heinz angered a lot of Canadians by essentially leaving the Canadian market. Now they were certainly selling their ketchup here. Don't get me wrong, but the Canadians making it or the Canadian tomatoes going into it—that's what changed. So it kind of became almost like a patriotic thing to maybe buy a different brand of ketchup. French's was quick to step in and say, "Hey, we'll be more Canadian." Then, then Heinz, uh, Loblaws uh, was really emphasizing, hey, we were even more Canadian than French's. And it was interesting to see the reaction from people. This, this really resonated with people. So fast forward to the announcement this week, Heinz is, um, decided they want to be a little more Canadian again. They're going to start making ketchup again, an announcement they're going to expand their facility uh, just outside of Montreal. So they're going to start cranking out a lot more Canadian-made ketchup, joining us for some thoughts on uh, Heinz's decision and why this became such a big issue in the first place. Uh, very pleased to welcome back to the program Sylvain Charlebois, professor and director of the uh, Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, good afternoon. Is it that Canadians just love ketchup so much, or why did this become such a big deal? Only in Canada where you can actually see ketchup wars. Such a boring yes. country. We need a ketchup <laughs> <So>. war. <laughs> um, yeah, way back, well, a few years ago, uh, six years ago, uh, the Kraft Heinz plant in Limington closed. And the community regrouped uh, to help to support farmers. And uh, so they started to actually manufacture tomato paste to support the French's brand. Uh, and uh, the French's ketchup at the time was actually manufactured out of the U.S. So tomato paste was actually exported to the U.S. and bought back in a bottle to be sold in Loblaw stores and everywhere. Loblaws decided to delist French's to support Kraft Heinz. That didn't go well in Limington at all. And uh, so there was a huge uh, social media campaign against Loblaw, against Kraft Heinz. That was six years ago. And uh, the campaign worked. And Loblaw decided to relist French's as a result of the campaign. And ever since, uh, there's been a lot of... Um, animosity, I would say, between uh, the people in Ontario, particularly, or, I mean, far, farming groups uh, across the country, and, and Kraft Heinz. Uh, so what we're learning today is that they're coming back to Canada to manufacture uh, ketchup. The problem is that they're still not going to use Canadian-grown tomatoes. They're, they're going to be importing tomatoes from, from abroad to uh, process in their plant in Montreal. It's funny when when you look at you know how supply chains work and and whether something is truly Canadian. I guess depends on on what aspect of it you're measuring. Like French's is a British company, uh, but they use Canadian tomatoes. Uh, President's Choice is a Canadian company, but I understand they were using American tomatoes. So what what yeah. makes a product Canadian? Is it the ownership? Is it where the tomato comes from? Is it who's bottling it or making it? Because it can be some or all of the above, right? Well, legally, if you actually look at the law, if the last step of processing occurs in Canada, it's a Canadian-made product. You can actually slap that maple leaf on your bottle. That's basically it. And so if you go to the um, section where you find ketchup uh, at your favorite grocery store, 
you will realize that that section has become much more Canadianized as a result of ketchup wars. Because <laughs> you see, French's ketchup is now manufactured in Canada. There was so much demand for the product, uh, French has decided to build a plant just north of Montreal, uh, north of Toronto. And so a lot of different products are now Canadian have that maple leaf on the bottle, except for the number one brand in Canada, which is Heinz. And so that's why today they're actually coming back to Montreal because they want to slap that maple leaf on their own bottle and, and not be an exception to the rule. Because I guess you know, we, we look at products and we realize, look, there's, you know, bananas are going to come from another country. We don't grow bananas here. But the idea of ketchup being made here, well, why shouldn't it be? We can grow tomatoes here. People can make ketchup here. So just maybe it's just the idea that, well, why shouldn't it be Canadian, right? And maybe we bristle at the fact that we, we lose out on those, those job opportunities. Oh, absolutely. I think so. It's only 30 jobs in Canada, uh, in Montreal. It's not a, it's not a yeah. huge announcement, but it is 30 jobs in food manufacturing. We've, we've lost over 30,000 jobs in food manufacturing since 2012. So we need all the help that we can get. Canada is not necessarily competitive when it comes to getting ingredients for equipment. We have to go to Europe. Uh, labor costs are very high as well. Lots of regulations as well. I'm sure you know that. And so Canada is not overly competitive. I think we're starting to, to be more competitive. We're starting to understand the role of innovation. And so uh, we need the support of CPG companies like Kraft Heinz to create more jobs because in the last little while, it's been tough. And frankly, I mean, it's been tough because of grocers charging fees, charging more fees, putting more financial pressure on CPG companies. That's why there's been a lot of plants that are closing in Canada, so it can't blame Kraft Heinz. So for them, coming back is great, but as, as for farmers... Uh, they are promising uh, to start buying Canadian tomatoes in two years from now, but I, I just don't see how it can happen because tomato growing is all about long-term contracts, and uh, and you need Limington, you need Southern Ontario to support yeah. a plant like that, but I'm not sure it's going to happen anytime soon. It's interesting, too, the strength of the brand, right? And, and, you know, Heinz is still the champ, even though, you know, there was a big pushback against them. Heinz is still the king when it comes to ketchup. There was certainly it's an opening there, close. right? It's not I mean, even French close. Is, it's, French's did increase. They're at 7% of yeah. the market. And the second is French's at 6%. <laughs> so still, so this and that, that's up a bit, isn't it, They're though? just trying to defend the number one status. Yep. And because of COVID, people are thinking about local, local foods. They're looking at f for that maple leaf. And so it's really a defensive strategy for Kraft Heinz. And, and frankly, over the last few months, what I've seen out of Kraft Heinz are moves to get closer to the consumer. They're really trying hard to, uh, to make gains in the eyes of the consumer looking for unique products, different products, because there's a bit of a war going on between grocers and, 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 and CPG companies, so, and they want to sell direct. They want to sell more products direct. I think it's part of that, too. It's funny because French is, is the mustard company. Heinz mustard doesn't do well. French's <laughs> ketchup doesn't do that well. It's just funny how, you know, we, we box these companies in. It's some brand strength, obviously, but it, it does limit them, doesn't it? Yeah, to, 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 to actually make things interesting in Montreal, uh, they'll, they'll be manufacturing ketchup right next to uh, your favorite peanut butter and mac and cheese.
<laughs> under the same roof. Isn't that great? No That's funny. <laughs> Uh, well, there you go. So it's <laughs> certainly an interesting development in, in the catch-up wars. Sylvain, so, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. All really right, appreciate take it. care. Bye-bye. All right, you as well. Uh, Sylvain so Charlebois, Dalhousie University, uh, the food professor. You can find him and follow him uh, on Twitter. He's uh, director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. So uh, it's interesting how you know these companies got to balance that. What's going to be best for our bottom line? Where's the best place for us to make ketchup or get tomatoes? Because you want to be thinking, look, how do we strengthen the company? What's, what's most profitable for us? But at the same time, if you're taking jobs out of Canada or you're going to get your tomatoes from somewhere other than Canada, Canadians are going to notice that. And so why are you doing that? That's, you know, that affects these communities and that affects, affects these people who work there. So there was some blowback, but at the end of the day, I mean, Heinz is still king, as Sylvain says, by far. Still the, the dominant brand uh, when it comes to ketchup, but I, maybe it's just that we, we love ketchup so much or just a little bit of food nationalism. I'm not sure. It did become a big deal. So for whatever reason, Heinz has figured, let's kind of throw the Canadians a, a bit of a bone here. So they're going to expand that operation near Montreal. They're going to be doing some more uh, ketchup production in Canada, and maybe that will uh, cement their, their footprint here even more. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.